Welcome back to the Bible Brush Up podcast. Hope you enjoyed your Memorial Day weekend. I certainly did, but as these holidays usually leave us with some extra work to do when we get back to it, I've been delayed a little bit in my podcast production, and so this is the first of the week and probably the only podcast for this week that uh, I'll be putting out, but it will uh, hopefully bring some conclusion to the book of 1 Samuel and lead us into the book of 2 Samuel, where we can look at the transition of the monarchy from Saul to David. And when we were last together on the last episode of the podcast, we looked at the comparison between Saul and David, and I'd like to pick up there uh, because we weren't finished looking at how the writer of 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel compares these two people. And in fact, a lot of times they'll even break chronology. And so it may be a story about uh, two kingdoms going to war, and they may oscillate back and forth between uh, one camp that has David in it and another camp that has Saul in it, and it keeps backtracking so that you can get a clear comparison between these two figures. It's sort of like the Lord of the Rings, where the first 30 minutes may be covering the story of Frodo and Sam and showing their journey to Mordor, but at the same time that they're heading to Mordor, in another part of the world of Middle-earth, you have Gandalf and Legolas and Aragorn and Merry and Pippin. They're doing something completely different. But you can't show both of these at the same time. And so they show one, and then they have to back up and show the other. And so you don't have this constant chronology. And sometimes that's what the Bible does in order to show a comparison between one figure and another. And that's what we get between Saul and David. And so when we look at Saul, when we look at David in the conclusion of 1 Samuel and into 2 Samuel, we see two drastically different people. Um, We look at Saul who is trying to kill David. And the reason he wants to kill David is because he knows that David is going to take his place. And that's a threat to him. And so even though God, the God that Saul says that he worships, the God that had chosen Saul to be the first king in the first place, that God, he's defying because he wants to kill David. He knows that God has chosen David. And instead of surrendering himself to God's will, he tries to circumvent that will by putting David to death. And even though David continues to show himself as someone who is not a threat because he's unwilling to take Saul's life. Even though he repeatedly spares Saul's life, Saul will recant of his uh, the pursuit of David, but then he'll turn around and change his mind and end up pursuing him all over again. And what's interesting about this is this is Saul trying to kill Israel's chosen king. And when you're trying to kill the chosen king, you're really attacking the nation itself because the king is sort of like the head on the snake. And when you cut off the head of the snake, well, then it dies. And so if you can kill a nation's king, you really bring that nation down. And so Saul now, who has had the kingdom ripped from him, and it is now, at least in God's eyes, put upon King David, Saul is trying to take out Israel's king. So Saul is an enemy of Israel. Now David, on the other hand, is continuously sparing Saul and continuously standing up for Saul. He won't let any of his men harm Saul. He won't let any of his men harm any of Saul's family because he has such great respect for the throne and he has great respect for the chosen man of God. 
and David trusts that God will remove Saul. He knows that Saul is going to be removed. That's already been revealed. He's trusting God to do that work rather than take it into his own hands. Whereas Saul is a man who's going to take everything into his own hands, even if God has revealed that that's not how it's going to come down. And so this comparison and this contrast between David and Saul is very stark. Uh, Saul continues to kill Israelites. Uh, he, he went, we read, or we talked about last episode, how he went in and killed this entire city of priests who were Israelites, and they were serving Israel and supposed to be the mediators between God and Israel, and he kills them out. And David takes up residence among the Philistines, and he goes out every day on raids, and the people he ends up killing are the very people in the land that God had originally commanded that the Israelites drive out. So the very thing that the time of Joshua, the, the people that they were unwilling to drive out that are still in the land after hundreds of years— David shows up and he says, I'm going to start to finish this job. And he takes out the Amalekites and he takes out other Canaanite um, villages of people who aren't supposed to be in the promised land to begin with. And so we see this picture of David being a kind of a fulfillment of what was left undone during the book of Joshua. And Saul is the very opposite of that. He is a man who is actually killing off Israelites. So he is more like a Canaanite than an Israelite. And David, who is living among the Canaanites, is actually more like a true Israelite, obeying the true law of God, uh, than Saul is. And so this stark contrast is seen here in these uh, final chapters of 1 Samuel and the opening chapters of 2 Samuel. Uh, Saul, we uh, get a picture of him when things are going bad and he is starting to question whether the outcome is going to be favorable for him. He asks of God, so he does make a, an attempt to reach out to God, but God doesn't answer him immediately and Saul is impatient. Saul often, when he doesn't get his way, he just takes matters into his own hands and so he does. And he pursues advice from a necromancer. And a necromancer is someone who dabbles in uh, raising the dead and speaking with the dead. Uh, sometimes it's associated with one's descendants, but in this case it has nothing to do with the descendant of Saul since he conjures up the soul of Samuel. And it's a big question of what in the world went on here. Was this for real? And it seems like this is for real uh, because, first off, Saul had outlawed this practice. He didn't like it. It was wrong. In fact, in the law of God, it says that you are not to have mediums and necromancers or any kind of sorcery like that existing in the land because it's real. It's demonic power. It's satanic power that is on display, and it is contrary uh, to the will of God for these things to take place. Now, that doesn't mean that they have total sovereign power over the realm of the dead. If God doesn't want someone to be raised up to be spoken to, then he won't allow it. But in this case, he allows it because this is condemning upon Saul. And Saul's already brought enough condemnation on his head. God's going to just pour it on thick now. So he allows him to get advice and be... Uh, counseled by necromancers who have even been outlawed by his own official decree. And 
this just shows you that Saul isn't even going to listen to his own laws. Uh, even as the king who has already made a proclamation in the land that no necromancer should be there in, in the province of Israel, he goes and pursues them and seeks them out and finds one and promises protection for that necromancer and ends up talking with Samuel. But Samuel doesn't change his message at all. He says, listen, you're done. The kingdom is going to shift over to David. You are going to die. Your children are going to die. This, this isn't going to work out for you. Stop trying to disobey God here. But I find it very interesting, once again, that as you look at David over and over, every time he's going to go and fight, he pursues God. He asks God, should I go up? Should I go fight the Amalekites? And then God answers him. And then he asks, should I go and fight the Philistines? And God answers him. Uh, when David had come back from being sent home from a battle by the Philistines because they were afraid that he would turn on them, when he gets back to his town there, they had burned it to the ground and taken all the women. And, you know, if, if someone had burned my house and taken my family, I wouldn't ask any questions. I'd just go pursue. But David doesn't. He asks God. He asks for an ephod to be given to him, and he pursues God's will. And he says, should I go up? Should I fight? He, he doesn't really ever break that pattern except on one occasion. And that's when he was going to go and kill Nabal um, because Nabal would not share in some of his wealth, even though David and his men had protected Nabal and his possessions from many threats. And uh, this is when Nabal's wife, Abigail, comes and intervenes, and she basically says, don't, don't break your pattern of being a man who doesn't avenge himself. Let God do it, like God is going to do it with Saul, and don't make yourself guilty of avenging yourself like Saul does. Don't become like Saul. And so David thanks her. He's like, you're right. And she spoke some sense into his life, and he tells his men to put down their swords. We're not going to pursue this. We're just going to you know, let it be. And sure enough, God handles it. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. And David allowed God to have his own vengeance that day, and he allowed that with Saul. So very rarely does David take vengeance into his own hands. The only time where you really see him attacking is if it's an enemy of God or an enemy of the throne. So people that come and they boast about killing uh, Saul and people that come and boast about killing Saul's son who was sitting on the throne of Israel, those people David strikes down because they have no respect for the throne of God. They have no uh, loyalty to God's chosen men who have been put upon that seat and they should do what David does and allow God to take care of the threat, not take it into their own hands. And so only with Nabal was there ever a break in that pattern from David uh, to go and to take matters into his own hands. Uh, but Saul continuously did this, and it was his downfall. Um, and so David is anointed as king among Judah, and eventually when Ishbosheth is uh, slayed, then the people of Israel come and they remember and uh, recall that David was in Saul's house and he went out to battle. And you have that popular song that even the Philistines were aware of that Saul has killed his thousands, but David has tens of thousands. And they recall all that and they say, You can rule over us. So a divided kingdom is consolidated under David. And 
this isn't going to last a really long time. 40 years under David, and then Solomon will rule uh, and be over both of these kingdoms. But when Solomon dies, the next king will end up ripping the uh, northern kingdom and the southern kingdom apart. And so we'll have another civil war and another break in the nation, which really doesn't find any strong unity again until uh, we get into the New Testament. But um, this story of David taking the kingdom is a pivotal point in the Old Testament. It is it is, it is as important in the Old Testament narrative as the story of Abraham and the story of Moses. These figures are the, the pinnacle of the theology of the Old Testament, and for New Testament believers, this may be even more important because David becomes a figure that is going to set up the pattern that the Messiah will fulfill when he comes. And um, the idea of a Messiah existed prior to David, but it was very ambiguous. There wasn't a lot of hard facts and things to look for, except that there's going to be some savior, somebody who's going to come and crush the serpent's head. And we begin to get more and more pieces of that, but it really starts to become more clear under this Davidic covenant. When David is ruling, uh, and he ends up ruling from Jerusalem, uh, Jerusalem is one of those territories that were never conquered under um, the rule of Joshua. It was never conquered under the judges. It was not conquered under Saul, even though it was in Saul's own providence, um, the, the tribe of Benjamin. And so this was unfortunate that, that it stayed in the hands of the Jebusites for so long. But when David takes the throne, he goes in and he drives them out and he sets up the kingdom there in Jerusalem. And it becomes a very important epicenter of the Old Testament and of the Jewish religion. One of the most important pieces of this entire section that we're reading, though, it comes out of the book of 2 Samuel chapter 7. And it is here that David inquires of the prophet Nathan about building a house for God because David looks around at his situation and he's set up quite well. He has a cedar house. He's got all that he needs and more. And he looks at the Ark of the Covenant and it's sort of still in a nomad type of state. It's getting moved around from one person's house to another person's house. And David I guess feels that there's more permanency to Israel's situation. They've now entered the land. They're not roaming around in the wilderness anymore. So he believes that God's, um, his presence that is seen with the Ark of the Covenant needs to have a permanent place that's even more grand than his own home. And so he inquires of Nathan the prophet, can I build one? And God responds to Nathan that night with this lengthy section that we have in 2 Samuel. And I'll summarize it. And basically, God says, what are you talking about building me a house? I'm going to build you a house. Quit thinking that you are permanent because you're only permanent if I make you permanent. You can't set up a permanent place for me because I might move on to another location and you guys have to follow me. I'm the one who determines where we stay and when we go. That's always been the case. In the wilderness, if God stopped somewhere, they set up the tabernacle and that's where they dwelt. But if God moved on the next day, they took it all down and they moved with him. He's in charge here. Not David, not Saul, no one else. 
Even though David's a great guy and he's done a lot of good things, he's not in charge. God is still in charge. And so for David to bring this up and initiate this um, is sort of being too presumptuous. And God calls him on it and he says, listen, there's going to be a building of a house, but it's not going to be you building me one. It's going to be me building you one. And they use the same word house here. Uh, in the Hebrew as they're jumping around back and forth. And God is very punny like that sometimes. He uses play on words and he speaks the language of the people. And so he's telling David that he's going to build him a house. It's going to be a dynasty and that the um, throne will always remain in his family, which is a foreshadowing of the Messiah to come who will reign eternally. That's what we have in Jesus. That's why he's the son of David. That's why the, all the Davidic traits that come out in the New Testament and in the Gospels point to him being the fulfillment of this Davidic promise. Uh, and this is ever so important. But following this, God does allow David's son to set up a temple for him. And so we do get this sense of permanency that was intended by David, but it comes from God's command. God is the one who initiates it. It's not going to be initiated by a man because God determines if he stays or if he goes. He determines if Israel's going to remain in the land or if he's not. And so by allowing Solomon to build this temple, he is saying, yes, there is permanency here in Israel and I will be here and not depart from you. I will establish your house and I will be with you guys forever. And these words forever and eternal, they show up in this chapter. And uh, this is a covenant that really is going to carry through the prophets all the way into the New Testament. And it is as important, if not more important than the ones that came before it. It's really the same covenant. It's just being blown out a little more. It's getting more clear. It's getting more uh, nuanced as God is fulfilling the promise of restoration of his people. And so by establishing the temple here, worship is being restored to what it should be. And we get all of this because David was a faithful king who pursued God with all his heart. And God rewards him and his household uh, because of that faithfulness. And so it encourages us to be faithful as well. It encourages us to pursue worship like David pursued worship. It encourages us to be uh, selfless and to care less about ourselves like David who referred to himself as a flea in Israel. We need to be humble like he was. And that's who God exalts. David will be the standard bearer for all future kings. And Saul will be forgotten in Israel. Let's not be the ones who exalt ourselves and who are humbled by God in the end. We'll pick up here next time on the Bible Brush Up Podcast.